Hey everyone, welcome back to the TechCrunch Live podcast, where founders help founders build better venture-backed businesses. I'm Matt Burns, and this is the podcast version of our weekly live show, which you can register for at TechCrunch.com. One of my favorite people is leading today's interview, Nisha Tambe. She's TechCrunch's startup battlefield editor, who is largely responsible for the hundreds of startups that pitch and exhibit at TechCrunch Disrupt. But she's here today because of her personal experience with IVF. Nisha spoke with Oma Fertility co-founder Karen Josie and Root Ventures partner Chrissy Mayer. Unlike many other fertility providers, Oma focuses on male infertility, and today we're going to hear a few things. Number one, how Oma Fertility's experience in building a company in healthcare during a global pandemic, how Root made the jump to virtual first investments, which is now the new norm, and how founders can craft their story and stand out in a crowded market. As always, you can find the full video of today's conversation on our YouTube channel, which we'll link in the show notes. Be sure to stay through to the end for audience questions and, of course, pitch practice. Thanks so much and enjoy. Here's what I know. Building a company during the pandemic was hard, but raising $71.5 million for in the fertility sector is hard during a pandemic or not. I need you to know that Oma's fertility CEO and co-founder Gurjeet Singh was going to do this interview, but had a family emergency at the last minute. And thank goodness for co-founders. And I really appreciate Karen stepping in the last minute so we didn't have to cancel. Well, here we go. Anyway, Nisha, the show is over to you. It's all you. Thanks so much, Matt. And hi, everyone. Excited to be chatting with these two fantastic individuals today. As Matt mentioned, I am going through the egg freezing process myself. So trying to figure out what fertility looks like is a very hard and very complicated process. Before we even had these folks lined up for interviews, I've been doing a tremendous amount of research trying to figure out what works, how it works, where to go, and what the best methods are. So when Oma Fertility came up on our roster, I became very excited to talk to them. You heard a little bit from Matt about what Oma does, but I want to turn it over to Kieran. Kieran, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what Oma Fertility does and how you're different from the players in the market? Oma's mission is to empower growing families and hopeful couple with science-forward affordable fertility treatment that are setting a new standard for fertility care and IVF success rate. At Oma, we believe that parenthood is a human right and that everyone seeking to have a child should have access to the most advanced treatment at an affordable price. Let's talk a little bit about the actual technology. What is the novel piece here? Talk to me about the AI that you've built and what it does. Our, our fundamental belief is, you know, like uh, there's so much room for improvement in IVF technology by introducing things like uh, AI and robotics. So the main observation is coming from the fact that, you know, if you visit IVF labs today, it kind of looks like a high school biology lab, right? So with very basic equipment. And the most important part of IVF lab is actually the embryologist. If you are lucky enough to have a great embryologist, your lab success rate will be high and your you know, success rate of your treatment will be high. Otherwise, it will not be as high. And the reason is, you know, most of the things which embryologists perform are very subjective. And by leveraging technology, we, we plan to remove subjectivity from this decision-making process. Karen, I have a question for you, which is why focus on the sperm side of the equation? The thing that I didn't realize before we invested in Oma is how how much eggs are a precious commodity in the process. How like in any given IVF cycle, like you're really lucky if you get a double digit number of, of eggs and then only a subset of them like fully mature. So there's an even smaller number that you can even attempt to fertilize. So like every egg is like ridiculously precious. And, and historically, like 
when sperm is selected for IVF, it's like a human like staring under, like Karen said, like high school biology lab style microscope, looking at like maybe like 10 or 20 sperm and picking the first one that they can find that they think is like good enough. Um, but they find like, they find one that they think is good enough and then they just grab it and then they move on to the next part of the process. And, and this is where like OMA is really like flipping the process on its head. Um, so like, like, you know, they, they took a step back and they basically said like, wait a second, like we think that we can do better. Like if we actually look at hundreds or thousands of sperm cells and in the future, like in the far future, like we can, we can probably even look at millions of sperm cells and have a computer do the analysis, like use computer vision and very objectively say this one is the best it definitely underscores the miracle of life, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it's not actually as easy. <laughs> it, it turns out like 40% of infertility cases are coming from the male side. And male fertility has been in decline across the globe by 2% every year. It's believed that in the near future, in a 40 to 50% of the cases, all cases, infertility cases will come from the male side. And the second reason is if you think about it in a, in a, in a single sperm sample, there will be like 100 million sperm cells. But in 100 million sperm cells, only 4% of those sperm cells will be normal. Because of the sheer high number of the sperms and very low percentage of the normal sperm, like identifying the normal sperm is not a human scale problem. Whereas if you look at you know, AI, they can process all of these sperms in parallel. When they had originally come to talk to you, Chrissy, about getting this, this investment, the timing was very interesting, right? It was during the pandemic. So would love to know a little bit more about what it was like being pitched. Um, I believe you had mentioned earlier that this was your first uh, pandemic virtual investment. So I'd love to hear about that process. And then also, you know, when someone is pitching you something that is a little bit more out there than a traditional, you know, it's not a marketing tool or a SaaS tool. This is this is something a little one step beyond. How do you factor that into your decision making? And how did you do that in such a unique time in the investment space? Yeah, yeah. The the story is actually like really funny. I mean, we were introduced to Kieran and Gurjeet and Sahil from another investor. And we were like one meeting in and we knew that there was something really special, like really special about this one. We had not, like at Root Ventures, we had done a lot of deep tech investments, but we had never done a, a med tech investment at that time. Like now, fast forward to today, we've done several more. But but I laugh about it now. In retrospect, I did like, I don't think I've told you this, Karen, but I did like five times the amount of diligence when I was looking at OMA than I have for like any other investment I've ever done. And, and I think like part of that was like, that's what it took for us at Root to really truly get comfortable, like diving in headfirst into this space. The more and more meetings we had and the more and more I peppered Karen with like technical questions, the deeper we got, like the more excited I got about it. And I feel like when you get into vetting companies, um, at least for me as an investor, it either goes one way or the other. Uh, sorry, I'm going to jump in real quick, which is 5x, 5x the amount of due diligence. What what was the red flag for you? Was it the timing? Was it the product? No, it was there. There was there was no red flag. It was more of like, because we've never done a medical tech investment before, we wanted to make sure we understood everything about the space. We wanted to make sure we knew about fertility clinics, who owned them, who operated them, how were the businesses, what are the margins look like. We wanted to make sure that we understood the best embryology labs in the world and the worst embryology labs in the world and what the differences are in their process. We wanted to understand reimbursements and like 
you know, private pay versus insurance and what the trends in that space look like. There's so much to unpack there. Everything fell into place and they all just kept making me more and more excited and wanting to do this deal. And then the other piece of it, which is actually really funny that you mentioned, it's like, this was two months into COVID when they raised their seed round. Like the world was still very much on like total lockdown. And, um, like we were the, this was the first team we had ever invested in without meeting in person. So as a team, that was terrifying. Like it feels normal now, but like it was terrifying at the time. And, 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 you know, we, as a team were like, well, what if they're not real? What if they're deep fakes? Like <laughs> Karen's like, I promise, I promise all this blood, sweat and tears is, is not a deep fake. And that's really tough. And Kieran, your team is full of serial founders. Um, so going into this, I think it's a little bit different than some first-time founders. But from your experience, what was that like pitching virtually? And, and how did that change how you shared your story with the investor? We were just getting started with our pitching. And then you know, COVID happened and the world started shutting down. So uh, it was a little bit uncertain in the beginning, but we quickly figured out like, you know, and that's the beauty of Silicon Valley. Everybody sort of started adapting, right? So, you know, no more personal meeting, or even if you meet no more handshakes and things like that started coming in. And after a while we got into the groove, right? So I think, you know, it actually turned out better for us because we were more efficient. We didn't have to travel anywhere for our meetings, right? We just switched from one meeting to next meetings. And I'll tell you other interesting thing, not on the VC side, but on the expert side, we were building building something which is vertically integrated, not just a technology piece. Um, and we were trying to get feedback from a lot of like uh, fertility expert and embryologist expert on our approaches. And because the world was shutting down, a lot of people were sitting at home. It was really easy for us to access all of these experts. They were super generous with their time, but like, you know, we were super lucky enough. We talked to about like, you know, 50 to 100 experts in very short period of time to validate our idea. So in a way, you know, uh, I mean, it was a bad time, but like overall, the experience was not that bad. After a while, we all adapted. And, you know, as Chrissy mentioned, uh, you know, we, we had two investors, none of them we ever met. And we met, I think, you know, Chrissy, I think we met uh, in person after about a year, right? So if I remember correctly, so it was like, oh, this is how we look, right? So, so we are real. So, so it's a very unusual feeling, but yeah. Do you have um, any suggestions for founders who are looking to get investment virtually? I mean, honestly, we've become like almost desensitized to it, which in a way, I kind of I, I kind of hate. There's something from like an impersonal, in-person interaction that it's just like, there's just so much more like energy and it's easier to like build excitement that way. Pitching virtually, especially like first meeting, second meetings is really ridiculously efficient. It, it doesn't make sense anymore for founders to waste their time driving from San Francisco to Menlo Park or Palo Alto and, and back multiple times for a 30 minute meeting if the investor is not going to get excited. So, so it's actually um, very efficient. And, and I think that just like, um, trying to quickly schedule follow on in-person meetings if there's an ounce of excitement is is usually the move that I recommend for founders. But um, yeah, you can get through a bunch of potential investors in a very short period of time now that it's all a lot is still virtual. The challenge I feel like with a lot of founders is understanding how to craft a story when it is really different. Um, Chrissy, what was the standout piece for you that finally, you know, clinched that deal? Yeah, I mean... Everything that Karen said, I loved it. Like I loved it from the very beginning. And I, I think that like 
This deal in particular, there was no question in my mind if the pain point was real. Like anyone who's ever been through the journey or knows anyone who's ever been through the journey knows that it is like they are solving a very real pain point. And with a lot of startups, like you have to first make the leap to believe that they're actually solving a real problem. And that wasn't the case here. That was kind of a given. I loved that they were thinking big from the beginning. I loved like seed investors and pre-seed investors. We want to see companies swinging for the fences. Like that is what what we love. And and I knew from the outset that like Karen wasn't just going to be selling microscopes into existing clinics. Like that wasn't what they were going after. Like they knew that they needed to, like if they wanted to make the biggest difference in the fertility space, like they needed to be able to touch patient care and do patient care the way that they wanted. They needed to be able to capture the most value and and all up and down the process. They needed to operate their own clinics and they tackled it. Like they did it. They didn't shy away from it. They didn't hesitate. They were like, yeah, this is going to be harder. Yeah, we're going to have to figure this out. But um, we just agreed that that their full vertical integration was going to be a really important piece of Oma's story. And, and that's what it was going to take in order to build like the biggest possible version of this business. Karen, I have a, a spicy question for you, which is the, the sperm side, you know, the uh, AI automation and building that vertical integration makes sense. Your team is a uh, code. They're all three male co-founders. How does that factor into the way that you are building your company? We looked at it from like many couples, like actually, you know, including like, I'll tell you my own story. When we started like Oma, like me and my wife were trying to expand our own family. Our daughter was seven year old at that time. And we were looking for fertility treatment options. And, uh, you know, we were surprised that, you know, fertility like treatments are so expensive and they were complicated because, you know, it was completely new to us at that time. And, and despite that, the success rate were so low. So we feel like, you know, many, many uh, couples or individuals who are trying to start their family are in the same same phase. And you're right. I think, you know, uh, from the burden of like, you know, like from the the, the actual process point of view, the female has to like, you know, it's, it's very taxing on female, like when you go through infertility treatment, because they they are the ones who have to take like, you know, uh, loads of hormones and, you know, they'll have to go through OR, but like, it's, it's a problem for like society in general. So each of us had uh, accidentally, in a way, landed on fertility from different aspects. That's fantastic. So, you know, you you touched on the financial challenges with fertility. It is, wow, is it expensive? I, you know, how do you balance a growth? We had this question from Greg in the audience, which is how do you balance that need for growth and profitability with being able to provide affordable care to your patients? We, uh, we believe that technology can help a lot in this as well. So we utilize a lot of internal technology to like, you know, make processes more efficient, right? So we use things like, again, this is not very common in healthcare. We use things like CRM. Uh, we use like, you know, internal Slack messaging to make things much more robust and, you know, communicate with each other quickly. So, so essentially, you know, by leveraging technology, like what we are building for our lab, as well as for our operational thing, uh, we can, we can save a lot of cost, and, you know, we are passing those costs back to the, back to our patients. So it is in fact possible. And that was an eye-opening thing for us. Like, you know, there's so much, you know, room there for improvement on both sides, on the process side, as well as on the technology side, and that can reduce the overall cost. And that can be passed over to the, uh, you know, to the families. And this is the only way we can make it much more accessible, right? So so in the US, we we believe like there's 75% of people who could benefit from IVF for fertility care in general cannot access it. So in order to access those, in order to provide 
fertility care for them, uh, we'll need to like, you know, do something about the overall like, you know, structure. And if you also look, uh, you know, from also from like, you know, the location point of view, as I mentioned before, fertility care is a very local, you know, local service, right? So if you are somewhere far away, and it's not practical for you to access those services. So it needs to be available nearby. So to make it more uh, geographically accessible, you also need to innovate on the lab side uh, because, you know, today, if you want to build like a new fertility clinic, building lab takes about nine to 10 months with between permitting and everything else. So it's a very, very expensive, long process. So again, our approach is let's automate any, everything we can, you know, wherever there is huge human variability. Uh, and that should reduce both on the sort of capex needed to start a new clinic, as well as it will optimize the internal operational cost. And all these things can will allow us to like provide fertility care at much more affordable price. Sorry to jump in, but like, what are the numbers? I think it was like 25,000 on average for one cycle. Is that correct? 20,000. And like an, an, an average person has to go through three cycles to get one successful pregnancy. So that's like, you know, 60 to $75,000 for one kid. If you, if you want multiple kids, then that, that could be a lot more. Like it's very, very expensive. But I think that like, I, I get excited because the like most obvious way to like drive down cost is if you can reduce that, like three cycles to get a successful, to get one successful pregnancy down to one cycle to get a successful pregnancy, then all of a sudden you're talking about 20,000 instead of 60,000 and it becomes a lot more affordable. So, so as Oma is like the one company in this space that is really aggressively tackling like improving outcomes. Like we just don't want, we, we're not here to just make the process more efficient. We're actually going to move the needle and make the success rates significantly higher. And, and, and that's why I think they're, you know, poised to, to succeed. Karen, what are, you know, you've been a serial founder, your co-founders have, but what is something, what is a new lesson that you learned this time around that you can share with other founders who might be tuning in? The most important thing I would say for early stage investor is to start thinking, you know, not just focus on the product, right? Product is really important. And also figuring out like, you know, the go-to-market strategy. I, I think you know, many founders, in my opinion, like in early days, they focus too much on, you know, product. But like the big question is like, how do you actually go out, you know, and, and you know, as Chris mentioned, right, dreaming big, right, swing, swing thing for the you know, fence, uh, you know, you may or may not get there, but at least, you know, that will change your perspective on how you make your, you know, local decisions. When you're dealing in a industry that is pretty regulated and it is kind of an uphill battle, you know, for many founders who don't have the backgrounds that y'all might have, what is a, I don't want to say a hack, but what is a quick tip that you would give to a founder being like, Hey, you should be prepared for X when you are starting a company in healthcare. That's so disruptive. For healthcare, there's so much opportunity in healthcare, and there are people who are interested in changing. I mean, you know, it's a, like the the big problem in healthcare is there's some some part of the healthcare which is very hard to change, uh, but you can always start somewhere. Right? There's there's always like you know, so you need to start somewhere, and I believe you know, right now is a great time opportunity for making changes in healthcare, specifically with uh, things like AI and robotics, where you can introduce these new things and you can you know, you can achieve in a couple of years, like superhuman power, right? So you are not displacing anybody. You are actually providing them with additional tool, which will make them like 10x more efficient or 10x more accurate, right? So, so don't be deterred by the fact that, you know, this were done the way it was for 40 years. Actually, you know, in fertility, things haven't changed a lot for last four decades. So we've been doing the same thing again and again. 
But right now we have all these tools available from AI algorithm to you know the hardware systems where you can run these algorithms in efficient manner. Uh, we can actually make big changes, and we are seeing that slowly in different other areas like you know radiology, uh, in, even in robotic surgical um, industry. So essentially, look for problem. Right, it's all about prob- finding the right problem and using the right tool. Before we wrap up, I wanted to know like what we have Christian from the audience who wants to understand where Oma's fertility playing is going to fit in the evolution of, of healthcare, but what's what's next? How do you plan to grow? What can we expect to see? So, yeah. So uh, as, as we mentioned before, we started with sperm, uh, you know, th- that was a problem very, very uh, well fitted for the AI technology, but we want to actually automate pretty much everything that happens in, uh, in different steps of embryology process inside the IVF lab. So this will include things like automating the fertilization, automating incubation, biopsy, pretty much you know everything because all of at each of these steps there is huge amount of subjectivity that comes from human you know human to human variation. So we want to reduce that subjectivity and improve the success rate overall, right from end to the. And and our main goal at a very very high level is like you know uh, as we mentioned before like the eggs are really precious, right? So there are limited number of eggs. And the, our goal of our technology is to take majority of those eggs and convert them into maximize the number of embryos you can produce at the end, right? So that's what we are working towards. So anything that happens in between eggs and embryo, we will optimize that thing and we will improve that thing using automation. Well, there you have it. We heard from Kieran and Chrissy on building game-changing companies and regulatorily challenging industries. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with us. And now you're not done quite yet. Um, Burns, why don't you take it away with our Pitch Deck Teardowns? And I got to talk about Chrissy's uh, website first, root.vc. It's unique, I, I think is a good way to say it. It's unique. It, it is definitely worth a visit. So once again, it's root.vc. Give that a, give that a go. Anyway, we're going to switch gears here for a moment. So we have a segment that we call Pitch Practice, and we bring on entrepreneurs, and they're going to pitch us for two minutes. It's just an elevator pitch. It's like if you're meeting somebody at the bar and you need to explain your company over drinks. They're going to pitch us for two minutes, and then they're going to get four minutes of feedback from our two guests today. And, and the first company we're going to bring on was actually, if you're joined in last week, Harry wasn't able to join us last week. So we promised him he'll be first this week. So Harry, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Sir, you have two minutes to present your company starting now. All right. So, yes, my name is Hari Venkata. I'm a co-founder and CEO of a company called Nextus. And XTA stands for Next Generation Transportation as a Service. Uh, actually, it's already Thursday for me. I'm right now in India. It's about 1 a.m. So uh, glad to meet you all. Um, so we are trying to solve two big problems. You know, the first problem is the the intercity bus market in India is very fragmented and unstructured. There are about 6,000 private bus operators and the total time is expected to be $16 billion by 2026. So uh, what we're going to do is, you know, we, we are, we've already have the platform ready as SaaS platform. Uh, we will deploy this with the bus operators and help them get, uh, prop, get to profitability faster using modern data technology infrastructure. The second problem is related to this is, is, uh, is about the carbon emissions that these buses generate. Uh, an average intercity bus uh, produces about 129 grams of CO2 per passenger kilometer. 
So we are going to be aggregating about 1,000 electric buses between cities by 2026, thereby saving uh, close to 1 million metric tons of carbon emissions by 2026. So these two problems are big. Uh, I'm an ex-AWS employee. I was managing a nine-figure SaaS account before in the Valley, and then I moved back to India. I quit my job and moved to India in November. So we're excited to solve these two problems. And uh, my co-founder um, also has quite a bit of experience in the online travel space, as well as in the smart city space, where we find some interesting opportunities in the urban mobility area. Um, so that's, that's basically what we're trying to do. And we are raising a million dollars the first seed round. Okay, Harry. Thank you so much for that. That was very good. And thank you for joining us, despite the time time change. That means a lot. Okay, Chrissy, any, any feedback for him? Yeah, no, absolutely. First, I'll say like what what I uh, what I loved about it. Like, there's no question in my mind that this is that like when you're talking about buses in India, that it's a big problem and that it is a very very large market. Like when you're throwing out the TAM numbers and when you're talking about like the amount of emissions, like you're you're really like establishing the severity of the problem. Um, in terms of like, you know, things that I think could make the story a little bit stronger, make the story a little bit robust. Um, I think that, that there, there are two big categories, one being um, what exactly is the product? Like I still walk away saying, okay, you're going to build SaaS platform, but like, what does that SaaS platform do? Um, or is, is it handling scheduling? Is it handling dispatching? Is it driver management? You know, is it handling charging and load management for the electric buses? Like what, what, what is, what is exactly is your, is your platform going to do? And then what does the, the landscape look like of solutions that people are already using in that space? And, and it's something that like, I am not familiar with at all. So would need a little bit of education. I know it's hard to do in two minutes. It's <laughs> maybe impossible, impossible to do in two minutes. Yeah. So it's basically, a, it's called a, like a GDS, Global Distribution System for Bus Platform, Bus Market. We on, Once we onboard an operator, we take care of the inventory, the routes, you know, the ticketing. And then we distribute this inventory through APIs to large online travel agencies. So think of it as like a mini ERP for the bus operator to run their business. That's very good. Okay. Any, anything from Kieran? Pretty much similar to what Chris said, like I think a great problem to solve. Uh, in the beginning, uh, the solution was not clear to me. So I think you know, adding a little bit of meat in that in the beginning would, would be helpful. And then also like, you know, uh, think a little bit more about competition, right? Like uh, not just competition, what's the current solution look like? How are people, you know, is, is it completely fragmented? Like, you know, it sounds like some, there is some traction already happening with other products. So talking a little bit about that and how you differentiate yourself from them would be super valuable. So if I may, you know, I mean, I've actually done a startup before from 2013 to 17 in the same space. Uh, I built an online bus ticketing platform where we transacted close to a million dollars of tickets. So I know this market very well. I know these operators. I know who they are. I have the phone numbers. So we are, you know, right now we're trying to do it with a uh, very, if you will, gorilla style approach to get to the first five customers. And then the market is very close and detailed. The word will spread, you know, once the value is realized. So that's how we're going to attack, you know, this market. Harry, thanks so much for joining us. And, and sorry about last week's. I'm glad we finally got you on though. Best of luck to you. Next, we have Emily and trying to find Emily. Emily from Foolproof Labs. Emily, are you there? I'm here, I believe. Hi. You can see if you can turn on your camera and your mic. Hi there. Okay, well, you have two minutes to present your company and that timer starts now. 
Um, hi, everybody. My name is Emily Herrick. I'm the co-founder of Foolproof Labs. Um, Foolproof Labs has a couple of patent pending technology solutions that allow uh, individuals to create secure layers on open blockchains. Um, the benefit of creating these secure environments on open blockchains is so you have data transparency across users while eliminating traditional Web2 solutions for this, which ultimately, um, I guess, equates to expensive API calls. So in things like logistics and supply chain management, as well as current decentralized applications that are happening on the blockchain, um, the need for transparent data is um, incredible. The, the consumption of this data comes in huge volumes. You can solve this inherently on blockchain because of its decentralized and transparent nature, but it creates um, the same risks that come with opening up all of this data, which is the, um, the opportunity for someone external to this to affect uh, the data in progress. Um, so what we've been able to do is create secured environments on these open blockchains to facilitate the transactional basis of this data. Um, you can maintain transparency, you can share this openness um, as items move from company to company um, while creating a, a, a transparent history of all of these actions. So as a consumer at the end of the supply chain, you have um, unlimited access to this data and you have real truth behind the, the quality controls that take place, as well as the ability to surface and optimize on um, opportunities. And the most interesting part about it is that we can provide this service to our customers for a fully refundable deposit um, by supporting the blockchain and the data settlement layer. Holy moly, Emily, you crammed a lot of stuff in there. That was really impressive. Kieran, let, let's start with you. Any feedback? Thank you. That's super, super like informative, like a lot of information in short time. Um, so my question is, I think, you know, um, like it'll be, it'll be great if you can also talk a little bit about the, you know, who the actual customers are. It sounded like it's, it's more of a platform, right? So, and, you know, like who you are going to in the first, let's say, who are the first five customers, for example, right? So what's the solution you are building for them? I think something like that will be, and, and then taking it from there to a bigger market, like, you know, what's the actual size of the market, right? So this is the total size of the market. Uh, and this is where we are starting would be super valuable. Yeah, I, I just want to translate that real quick, because if, if you identify who uses it and how they're going to use it, it really simplifies the message. It makes it easier for people to understand, especially in, in the blockchain space. You bet. Um, do you want me to answer those questions now? Quickly, if you could. Yeah, you bet. Um, so in the in the blockchain space, as far as self-custody users go, there's something um, to the tune of about 9 million transactions that occur every day. Uh, the opportunity there is close to $60 billion uh, as a total addressable market annually. Um, outside of the existing blockchain economy, there's opportunity in logistics and supply chain. Um, our target markets are trucking, which is about a $20 billion total addressable market, um, as well as marijuana distribution, mostly because of its highly regulati regulatory uh, nature, as well as um, requirements for traceability in order to maintain that regulatory approval. Um, that market is a little bit more dynamic and harder to measure, but um, close to $40 billion in America. All right, Chrissy, any feedback? Yeah, I was actually going to say exactly what Karen Karen said about like who exactly are your customers, and then and then I think like trucking versus marijuana, like those are very different um, 
very different customer bases. So like just adding in some context into like how you're going to effectively sell to like, you know, multiple, very different, um, customers at the, at the same time, because that, that screams like added overhead to me as an investor, um, from, from the beginning, if you're starting small, but then the second thing that I'll, I'll just say, um, quickly is that I think that there's, uh, there's something really powerful about starting a pitch with a story. Um, and I think that that you jumped right into the space that you're playing in, what you're building, what the product is. And I'm like missing the piece of it that is like an anecdote of like why you're why you're doing this or like why you're you and your co-founders are like working on this, like what's driving you. Like I, I think that like some of the best pitches that I've ever heard, usually the founders start out with like a personal story that talks us talks to us about their high school science fair project that got them hooked on the space or that like talks about all of the like sleepless nights they suffered through like for the pain point that they're solving, you know? Um, and, and when we hear those stories as, as investors, it something about it is like very like visceral and like we can we find it easier to connect with them. And you can also weave in your own background and history and resume. And that that also builds instant credibility um, with investors and, and just kind of like sets the tone for you then to jump into talking about what, ex- what exactly it is that you're building, how you're building it, how you're going to go to market. So, so yeah, I, I think that's probably my biggest piece of feedback is that like, start with a story um, b- before you like jump into the the meat of it. You know, it's a challenge for us too. And maybe we need, we need to rework this segment because I hear that a lot, but I do appreciate you showing up today and pitching. And if you're a startup founder out there and you would like to pitch next week, you can't because we're not on next week because I'm on vacation. But the week after that, we're going to be back and I'm interviewing Habby. It's a prop tech company out of Columbia. And I'm very excited to have them here. It's raised over $100 million and is the first unicorn from Columbia. So please join us then. And Chrissy, Kieran, Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. And I learned a lot about sperm today. And that was something I didn't expect. Okay. So we'll see you all, all next time. Thanks a lot. TechCrunch Live is hosted by myself, TechCrunch Managing Editor, Matt Burns. We're produced by Teresa Solo and Maggie Statements, with video production by Ishad Kalkarni, Julio Barrientos, and Dennis Martinez. We are edited by Andrew Mendez, Maggie Statements, and Teresa Solo. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch Audio Products. If you want your questions to be featured in an upcoming episode, email us at podcast at techcrunch.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.